What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan. I am here with my co-host Dave Martinson. Dave! Baseball season's quickly approaching and I wanted to ask you to get you on the record. How good are the Yankees going to be this season? 95 wins. That's it? How many games the Cubs win last year? You know, it's hard when everyone expects you to win 110. I have them slated for about 140 wins, easily beating the Red Sox this year. Oh, I see what you're doing. I think there's no doubt the Yankees are going to be probably the best team that Classic the world's ever reverse, seen, James. and they're going to win the mm-hmm. World Series, and Red Sox don't stand a chance. Sounds good to me. Shout out Pedroia and his contract. <laughs> Shout out Pedroia just in general, being awesome. Before we move on, we have a lot to talk about today. Please give us a rating review on iTunes, subscribe on iTunes, and somewhere below here and yeah share us with friends help us out if you're listening you obviously in some way enjoy what we're talking about so help other people enjoy us as well let's jump in though netflix today uh or i guess for the weekend people taking shots at netflix yeah what's happening yeah well there's two things really i think the bigger thing is that con film festival over in france uh one of the most longest running most preeminent film festivals in the world of course really the First major start to festival season in the spring festival season. Thirny Ramu, I not definitely butcher his name. The the height of Khan basically he's French. Said that Netflix films are no longer awards eligible at the festival. They can still show their films there, but they will not be eligible for prizes such as their top prize, the Palme d'Or. And this is kind of coming off the heels of last year at Khan, where Okja and the Meriwith stories to really good movies that were Netflix produced. They were shown at Cannes and it really pissed off a lot of French filmmakers. And the reason, of course, being is that film purists don't like the Netflix model where a movie either doesn't get a theatrical release at all or it gets you know a one-week token release in Los Angeles to qualify for the Oscars if they think it's good. And this is kind of the first major sign of gatekeepers or original contemporary people in the industry kind of pushing back on the Netflix model and trying to stick to what's traditional. What do you think of that? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, this doesn't really change much for really anyone. A lot of the films that are at Cannes are not movies that even any American audience ever sees. But what do you think about this reaction towards Netflix? You know, I didn't really care much about the con news kind of for the reason you said. I, I don't really even recognize the movies that come from from con that i end up watching but it was more the the second piece of news with netflix where spielberg was basically saying that he doesn't believe they should be considered for the oscars pretty much for the same reason that if they're just being released on 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 a large screen for like a week or two just to kind of get out there and then they go onto a tv platform their tv movie it's a hard topic and it's one that i feel like we've been talking about for the last couple years is like how does netflix move into this sphere how do people consider it and i was thinking about if there's a difference between how these movies are made that are made specifically for Netflix and the ones that are made for the, the larger screen. Like if that affects the way that budgets are doled out in the movie, like you, maybe you reduce the cinematography, maybe you try to reduce the soundtrack be, or you know the original score because it's just not most likely not going to be as powerful at people's homes when they're viewing it from that perspective. But it's a nuance and I'm not sure if I have an opinion one way or the other quite yet. What's your take? Yeah, well, the Spielberg thing's weird, too, because it's really just semantics. He's like, if they're great, they should easily be up for the Emmys. He has no problem with them being recognized. He just doesn't think they count for the film format, and thus the Oscars, which I guess I understand, but I don't know how you can watch Mudbound and think, yeah, that was a TV film. 
And right. the other hand, uh, like one of the Sundance movies that we mentioned when we did our Sundance breakout, I checked that out on our YouTube channel, was The Tale, starring Laura Dern, which was actually sold to HBO. So that was a, a film that was shot, but now it's going to be Emmy eligible because HBO has it now. It's not any less of a film despite it being on HBO and not getting a theater run. So it's kind of weird. I mean, for the con thing, if they want to go that way, that's fine. You have to have a theatrical run in France to be eligible for award. That's cool. Whatever. I think a big part of this, too, is, I mean, Netflix, they set out to release 80 films in 2018. The six major studios released 96 films last year. In order for Netflix to even come close to that 80 film target, they have to release a lot of crap, a lot of shit that people right. didn't want like the Cloverfield mm-hmm. Paradox for example which they took from Paramount so they're not going to want to release all of that in the theaters anyway because a lot of right. it doesn't deserve it and it won't make any money it's not worth marketing you know all those reasons so mm-hmm. I think both parties are kind of right in their thinking you know a lot of the filmmaking people they, they argue that Netflix hurts ticket sales which I mean that's a big fact we've talked about that it's kind of a different conversation but I mean at this point I think both Netflix and you know, everyone else, just keep doing what you're doing. I mean, Spielberg, if you want to think that way, that's fine. I don't know a lot if a lot of people really agree with you, though. But it's an interesting conversation, and I'm sure this will not be the last time we hear about that. I mean, Amazon kind of does it a similar way, where they give smaller runs to their movies, like Lost City of Z was in theaters. Not that long, but it had a decent opportunity out there. Not a super wide release or anything, but it's different than what Netflix does, which is not really in the theaters at all. We'll see. I mean, this definitely will come up again. Yeah, I think, you know, as I'm mulling it over a little bit more, if a movie's good, it should be recognized, no matter mm-hmm. whether it's the Oscars or the Emmys. And I, I also th- don't think there's any real threat to these Netflix movies winning these awards, maybe, maybe for an acting category, but it would have to be a movie that's so culturally impacting something like Call Me By Your Name. Like if that had been released on Netflix, I would have said that has a legitimate shot at winning some major awards. But I think the voters, though they're diverse and non-traditional as it's ever been, I think are still going to gravitate towards the larger screen experience. So I don't really see it really mattering. If a movie's good, give it the recognition. But like you said, we're going to be talking about this a lot, so we won't beat it into the ground today. So we, we kind of fell off in talking about the festival lineups, but it's also because there's like a gap. They're released right. pretty much all the ones in the early summer, released January, early February. Then there's a gap, and now the later year festival lamps are being released oceaga was was released two weeks ago uh, and then Lollapalooza released last week and uh, we tweeted about it from the account i quote tweeted it because i was hyped this lineup dude finally some some excitement in the bookings at, at a festival this <laughs> year just to kind of read through some of the highlights the, the top line the weekend bruno mars jack white and arctic monkeys Second line, Travis Scott, The National Vampire Weekend, Odessa, and Logic. Shout out Logic for being a second line artist at this point. Yeah. Which I did not see nuts. coming. What did you think of this Lala lineup, dude? I I know I was pumped. Yeah. Oh, which, by the way, that account is at Nostalgia Pod, so please follow the account. We tweet a lot of uh, news and analysis throughout the week, not all of which we get to on the pod. So for extra stuff, you want to follow the pod account. Uh, no, I think this is incredibly impressive. I mean, to keep going, fourth line is Camilla Cabello who had a, a, yeah. a monster album, monster number one single, and is going on a world tour, and she's that far mm-hmm. down. I mean, it's so impressive. Todd, the creator's on here. Uh, Dua Lipa, another artist who's super hot right now. She's there. Churches, mm-hmm. new album coming out there. St. Vincent, 
new album just dropped in the fall. She's there. I mean, I think it's fantastic lineup. Of course, Brockhampton's there because they're everywhere. Getting everywhere. all that paper. Everywhere. So happy for them. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they're like one of two festivals that has Little Pump, which is very weird to me. I don't know why he didn't cash <laughs> it as much as possible. Yeah, no, I, I think this is really exciting and one of the best non-Coachella lineups anywhere in several years yeah you know getting bruno mars and then partnering them with arctic monkeys and vampire weekend who are slated to probably be the major headliners for late year festivals anyway very exciting and you know you pointed out some of them but the fact that someone like saint vincent is fourth line at this it it just shows that lala is you know it's definitely the number two festival in the country behind coachella and with these bookings it seems even more interesting than Coachella to me right now. I don't want to belabor talk about festivals. The only thing that I've been encouraged by has been the headliners for these late festivals are all people we are hoping would drop albums this year. So Florence and the Machine is headlining Oceaga, Vampire Weekend, Arctic Monkeys we knew was going to. So these are this is just a good sign that we're going to be getting good music or new music from good artists moving forward. So definitely stay tuned. There's also supposedly a super festival uh, in Denver that's being created this year that Florence and the Machine is supposed to be headlining. I'm kind of keeping my eye on that because that, that could be a contender for a late sure. late summer festival. So Thinking about it, it's kind of weird that Denver doesn't have a festival. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of young people that live there. You would think it would make a lot of sense. Yeah, and people that smoke weed love to listen to music. So it seems just like a really smart <laughs> thing to to pair together but why don't we move on with one of the headliners for Lollapalooza Jack White dropping that boarding house reach electronic album as Dave at his at Martin Swagger account trademarked it this past Friday (laughs) I'm wondering is that a good thing that that this is Jack White's electronic album I don't know dude (laughs) the best I don't know the best tweet I saw about this was several times while listening to Boarding House Reach, I mouthed to myself, what the fuck? And yet I still <laughs> rolled with it. Uh, man, yeah. this is such a weird record. Obviously, the electronic production stands out so much. It's so inspired mm-hmm. by like contemporary sounds. It's ridiculous. But I mean, the, I think there's a lot of lyr- lyrics on here. There's not enough of guitar work, which is kind of what he's well known for, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not the, the biggest Jack White guy, but... It's such a far change from his first two solo records, let alone any of his legendary White Stripes material. So it was definitely out there and odd. Uh, what did you think of it? Well, I found the album at least interesting, which I can give him credit for. Jack White is always trying to do something different, find something unique, which I, I can credit him for. But yeah, this album fell flat in a lot of ways for me. There was maybe only like three or four songs I walked away thinking that's not too bad. And the parts I, I enjoyed the most were actually the parts where Jack White wasn't singing or talking or rapping or whatever he was doing on Ice Station Zebra. That I song mean, that was, was just... weird, man. Not a cringe good worthy. Yeah. Cringe worthy. And also, why walk a dog? What? It sounds like why it was a, like every... a David Byrne song, man. You, you fucking stole my joke, you asshole. <laughs> but yeah, man, I found it at least intriguing. And it makes sense that Jack White would at least experiment with electronic sound at some point. I mean, Blunderbuss and Lazarado are two albums that are pretty classic Jack White. You get some, some strong guitars, you get some blues, you get some songwriting more rocky sounded folk yeah and his songwriting is pretty much the same as it was on the white stripes albums but yeah jack white just isn't the same anymore he puts on a hell of a show live and like if you have the opportunity to go see him like at governor's ball please go see it but just the the music is just never going to be white stripes level i don't think and disappointing yeah well i mean what, what was what was her name was it meg white the drummer yeah yeah i mean i feel like she his she, ex-wife slash sister right yeah we don't have to get into that, but uh, I haven't listened to all of the White Stripes. Like 
I think it was like six records, something like a lot. Obviously, super influential, really helped bring rock back in the what late 90s, early 2000s, right? Really, really good stuff there. And I feel like her presence kind of, I don't know, reined him in. And Which is funny because her drumming definitely didn't. Right. And now that he's in his 40s, he's friends with Jay-Z and Kanye. He's very famous, very influential in the music game. It's just like he has everything at his disposal now and he has like no direction now. He just can do whatever the hell he wants. And obviously that makes sense that he fooled around all this production that sounds like nothing he's ever done. But at the same point, same you know, other side of that coin, he kind of is just kind of going for it, and he doesn't have much to say on the record. You know, the songwriting, like you said, like the dog song, there's a lot of weird stuff on here, and yep. there's no reason that you needed this album to exist apart from it was just Jack White decided to make it, it which is kind of disappointing for a guy of his caliber, and it, just like another frequent festival headliner this year, Eminem, he just makes an album that's so weird and so off from everything else he's done, and he also mm-hmm. happens to be older and well in the game, so... I don't know, it's weird. I really like to try and grasp more of the appreciation of this on the fan side. I know the critics, most most of them, the positive ones are kind of saying what you're saying, like give them credit for you know, trying some new things. And other people are like, yeah, but this also is pretty bad. I want to know what like the Rockheads think, because the Rockheads hold on to whatever rock there is, but what do they think of this electronic as fuck Jack White album? You know, I'd really like to see how that conversation goes. Pretty much from everything I read and, and heard was that this album wasn't received too great. I think that there's moments on it that people really enjoyed and hold on to. I was thinking about one other thing about this album that stood out to me, and that's Jack White really hates social media, and he hates cell phones and electronics. And it reminds me a lot of MGMT. We, we talked, was it a year ago, two years ago, about how, why rock is dying and hip-hop is rising? It was about a year and ago. I think it was like May 2017 or something. One of our most-watched YouTube videos, so check that out on our YouTube page, at Nostalgia Pod. Yeah, and I think this is a major theme I'm noticing. I mean, MGMT talked a lot about this on their album, that social media and modern uh, electronics are destroying our society and it's like well this is society now like you maybe you're right maybe all of your critiques are are on point but you also are fighting against a, a major wave and i mean i think that's why festivals are so important now is because they're experiential and you're there and yeah everybody has their cell phone out when their favorite song comes on or when a major moment happens but you're still experiencing it so to like be putting down this thing that is huge in your success at this point and critical to you know you being an artist and people receiving your music just seems like such like an old thought and like old man yelling at the clouds type of thing that i just really hope this isn't a trend that continues like i hope vampire weekends what's it like macchiato like mitsubishi macchiato the working titles yeah i hope it's not all about like why Twitter and Instagram are destroying our lives because I, I can't take much more of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I also feel like it's usually pretty of a, a pretty lazy observation yeah. because at the end of the day, no one's saying anything that profound. It's kind of obvious and we've heard, it gets kind of old hat at this point. Something that I think was just as disappointing, at least to critics, I'm more interested to hear your taste, was Pacific Rim Uprising, the sequel to 2013's Pacific Rim, the Guillermo del Toro directed, Charlie Hunnam, Idris Elba starring Major, was it a blockbuster? I don't even really remember. I don't think I saw it in theaters. It underperformed, but it did a lot better first weekend than Uprising did. Uprising did like mm. late, the high 20s. But I think the most interesting thing about Pacific Rim Uprising, a movie that's not good, and even if you're trying to review a kid's movie, a movie that should have been a lot better, the most disappointing thing about it, or interesting about it rather, is that it's 
five years after the sequel, Del Toro is not involved anymore. There's a lot of production woes with getting this sequel made. Del Toro was attached, then he wasn't. The director that they did pick was Stephen DeKnight, a director that has a reputation that nobody is familiar with because you don't know anything that he's done because he hasn't made anything great. And it kind of shows because everything about this was just so, like, phoned in. And it's weird, too, because Pacific Rim, the original, the concept is really simple. It's a really high concept. It's big mech suits, Jaegers, fight big monsters called kaijus, right? It's pretty simple. And Del Toro is really inspired by, like, a lot of anime, big stuff, you know, like pre-Gundam or whatnot to make the movie. And it should have been better than it was. But then when you have the sequel, the sequel takes it uh, into, like, the light. The original, all the fights happened, like, on the ocean at night. It was really dark. But the sequel, you have all these bright lights. And it shows you how, like, lame and lazy all these Jaeger and Kaiju designs are. And then you also get to see John Boyega, who's the best part of the movie, actually okay. doing an English accent for the first time, really, since Attack the Block. So the first time since he became famous, he actually gets to use his native accent, which I get, you know, I'm sure he was happy about that. Sure. And he he's lifelike. He delivers shitty lines as well as he can. But also there you have <laughs> Scott Eastwood, who was in uh, most recently in uh, The Fate of the Furious, Clint, one of Clint Eastwood's kids. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. He might be perfectly cast or he might be horrendously cast because acting is so fucking wooden, but he's also delivering really shitty lines. So maybe and his characters, it, they kind of make fun of him for being just like a pretty boy. So I, it almost like makes sense that they would cast someone like Scott Eastwood, who's not actually good at acting. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> then when you go from there, the story is somehow more convoluted than something that seems so simple should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't need to get into it, but it doesn't matter. But it was just more confusing and ridiculous than I, I expected. Also, there's all there's this whole subplot about these kids. And they're all really bad actors and a lot of cringy dialogue there. And you just don't care about any of those characters. And it's just so weird that this turned out so poorly because Charlie Hunnam kind of sleptwalked through Pacific Rim. Idris was the best part of it. His final speech about canceling the apocalypse is actually uh, pretty epic. But getting rid of Hunnam and Brian Boyega would have made a lot of sense. And he's uh, Idris's son uh, you know, in the story. But everything else is just so poor that there's really nothing to be happy about with this movie it's what it's like one of the worst transformers movies of that quality so again the most interesting thing to me is just how the movie got from the original to this point because actually watching it doesn't really bring you much much enjoyment this isn't a movie i was planning to see i'm not really into like the big monster transformer type movies so this wasn't something that really interests me i think i've only caught pacific rim in bits and pieces on my television whenever it's Mm -hmm. on but the only thing i really cared about from this is john boyega being good because i mean he was in the circle what barely has he been in other than star wars and in star wars even that he was injured for you know, the end of the first one into this one and then he had that weird subplot with rose and exactly. it's kind of like what is john boyega doing dog but i'm glad yeah. to hear he was lifelike i feel like he needs to have a, like a, a good movie come out that's not star wars mm-hmm. i'd like to see him potentially be bond i'd like to see him do something that's a little bit more charming and maybe a little bit less like things blow up or there's a conspiracy about a Bill Gates type or a a Steve Jobs type figure with the circle. Sure, sure. Yeah, no. And like another thing too, just to wrap, I mean, he was in Detroit. Give him credit for that. I know that didn't make a lot of money, but that was, that was a good choice. But the other thing about Pacific Rim too is, is in the original, there was this whole big part about the story about how the two co-pilots in the Jaeger, the mechs, they have their minds have to be compatible, right, and to mm-hmm. do it successfully. And it was a big part of the, the story, and at least it was something original. That's 
has no impact on this movie at all. It's just totally thrown in there. Like it actually had like emotional weight in the first one. And I guess that was probably one of Del Toro's ideas that he brought to the movie. And yeah, it just doesn't fucking matter at all this time around. Just stupid plot device once they need it. So just another yeah. example of the movie just being a total failure to launch. But hey, I think audiences showed that and made like twenty eight million first week. It's expensive movie still, even though it didn't look as great as it should have. And I think we've kind of seen that the past I think summer six twenty sixteen you really saw this too. Uh, until now is blockbusters that don't look that great and then they turn out to not be that great are not doing as well as they used to this movie would have made a lot more money 10 years ago but audiences are more fickle in their learning so you gotta do better with your expensive ass movies yeah although it did unseat black panther which made 17 million oh. crazy that weekend black six about six... time somebody unseated. yeah it. it's tomb raider <laughs> tomb raider should have done this uh, the week before yeah, let's be real i agree with that so i think we're, we're gonna have a lot to talk about with black panther after next week after march ends we'll mm-hmm. kind of recap the run that that's had but hopefully we'll have some good movies on the horizon ready player one and isla dogs both move into wider release this week so we're gonna i think both see that and both see both of those and we'll talk about that next week so we can cleanse our palate a bit last night hbo rolled out a season premiere of silicon valley barry but before we get to those i want to talk about still my favorite show on television still the reigning champ still holding the belt atlanta robin season dog i mean it was Michael fucking Vick. Oh, man. Fucking great cameo, though. <laughs> <laughs> Money back. Dude, I, could, I couldn't believe three. it. When I saw him, I was like, is that really Michael Vick? Like, I thought they were going to do, like, one of those things where it's kind of like him from a distance, something like that, sure. or they use, like, a character like him. No, it was Michael Vick. Yeah. But it, we haven't really talked much about Atlanta Robin season since after, the, I think, the first or second episode. So why don't we recap the, these two, or at least talk about what we've liked or what we didn't like about this season so far. Where do you want to start? Moneybag Shorty or Helen? Uh, well, I think Helen's uh, the best episode of the season so far pretty easily. Yeah. So we should probably start with Moneybag Shorty first. There's a lot of great stuff in Moneybag Shorty. I think all the stuff with, what's the rapper's name that they're hanging out with at the studio, Paperboy? The, uh, uh, I for, I totally the, the guy who's like a pretty <laughs> obvious analog for Chance, like Chance and Yachty. Yep. Like that guy, like the, the whole thing with the studio with like the phoniness of a guy who has like mainstream connections, you know, being on the Fast and Furious soundtrack. I thought that was really well done. And then also they riffed in the very beginning that white mom who made that YouTube video complaining about the <laughs> yeah. lyrics to Vin Staples North. Vin North. Staples. And now they yeah. the, in the show it's basically a very similar looking white woman with a kid in the background wearing like the same shirt as the kid in the real video doing it to yeah. Paperboy. Just like when they, they did the Nikki Heaton thing uh, the episode before. I mean, all these little like spoofs and, and like, observations of real things that have happened. They're, they're so genius and like no other show could actually pull those off. Great to see. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that even though episode four is I think clearly the best episode, episode three kind of gets to embody the things about Atlanta that people really like and, and remember at least in terms of the, the comedic side, like the, the part where they're, they're at the strip club and the DJ is calling out earn yeah. he's like yeah you t- tip the girl like <laughs> just the way that like that whole thing went down and yeah the whole like strip, strip club scene had some great moments in it it's yeah. just it, e- even it, leading it really... up to that with earn yeah. with the hundred dollar bill and all that stuff 
I mean, everything about it, I think, was really well done. You finally got to see Van, too. Shout out Zazie Beats. Zazie Beats, she's fantastic, and we'll talk about her in a second. But I think just being able to be creative and spoof on things and take a perspective that you don't see in other television shows. Like, you don't see that scene where they're spoofing that white woman who made the North North like hate mm-hmm. video. You know, you don't see that other places. So it just does things no other TV show does and makes it great. I do want more Darius, but I think it's just because... Lakeith Stanfield is just fantastic, and it's probably better that he's used sparingly because when he does come in, he just steals like every single scene. Yeah, so. definitely. Why don't we move on to Helen, though? Why do you think this is the best show of the season um, or the best episode of the season? Sure, no, I think well, there's a lot there, obviously. Some like get out inspired stuff with the uh, black couple in yep. a really dominantly white area, white community. Some mm-hmm. plays on that, but also I think just everything that happens between Van and Ern. You don't see a more accurate presentation of real relationships <laughs> yep. and real conversations about relationships and struggling through that than you do there. And mm-hmm. God, it was so unsettling. Watch that unfold where Van basically says that she wants more from Ern, and Ern basically just shrugs and says, "This arrangement works for me." And damn, I mean, we, I've always thought that Don Glover's Ern, the way the character is written, is the least interesting of the core four, and that, yeah. that that's obvious. But he's also probably the least likable of the four because he just makes yeah. a lot of dumb mistakes. He's not really great at managing Paperboy. He's okay. Yeah, he's, he's fine. Okay. And then he's also just kind of shitty to Van. And mm-hmm. you really saw it here. And by the end of the episode, they're not on, he's not really on good terms with the relationship anymore. And just having it go in that direction and then having it represented with the ping pong match at the end. I mean, it, it's so unsettling. And I, I can't imagine what it was like to watch with a significant other. Well, it's a good thing Julianne doesn't watch this because I, I don't think I could have handled it. Mm. <laughs> but again, going back to things you don't see, I don't think you see a more accurate representation of like a heartbreaking but real-life conversation you see between couples nowadays. And, I mean, it's a not even a nowadays thing. It's just a, a history, one wanting more than the other. I think the things about this that are so interesting, and you think about how Atlanta season one started, it was like Ern was coming back from, like, uh, I don't know, he, like, dropped out of college or something like that. There was, like, some issues with, with him in college, and he never really got his degree, and his dad was upset about that. So it's obvious that Ern is just kind of like a child. Like, just yeah, immature. Sure. I mean, you see that even with, as he gets money this season, he's just blowing it everywhere, Twice. pretty much. It's <laughs> it's horrible <laughs> to watch. But I, I think that that is almost, I mean, it's definitely intentional, but I think that that is, like, a major plus for the show is that this is unlikable protagonist, and it lets all these other pieces shine. And even Van, there are parts of this episode where I totally agree with her and parts where I'm like, you got to check yourself there a little bit. <laughs> like, So I appreciate how they, they don't make it like, this is the guy you're supposed to be rooting for and he's totally right. likable and he's always right. And even the people that you do root for on the show have their flaws. Atlanta is still a masterpiece and I mean, we'll wrap it up. It's going to be interesting. It's, it seems like they're setting it up for Paperboy to possibly leave Earn. Yeah. Uh, as a manager. Uh, obvious hints there with you who dude. <laughs> yeah all that paper so i uh, that'd be really interesting 37 too. savage yeah <laughs> yeah Jeez, so, I'm, I'm interesting to see how serialized the story continues to be because we have had the plot yeah. advance pretty handily through four episodes like you can still have the bottle yeah. episode like we did in helen but there seems to be some more paperweight action like his song is gold people are he's famous mm-hmm. like it, they're developing that and i really like the direction they're going so we will see yeah, well, even in Helen, they say, you know, those those shows pay your bills. So he's performing on a regular basis at this point. Why don't we move on to Silicon Valley, though? So this is Silicon Valley's fifth season. We talked a little bit about how fourth season 
wasn't up to the superb standards of the past seasons. Mm-hmm. This first episode was okay. I wasn't blown away by it, but it's definitely setting up for some of the changes in the show with TJ Miller leaving and Ehrlich Bachman not being there. Also, Gavin Belsom coming back and not being teamed up with you know, Richard, Richard and, and the team anymore, but obviously a foe or a antagonist again what stood out to you what what did you like what didn't you like i think i read about i read some of this in advance review so i don't think all this was in the first episode but i like how they're kind of like acknowledging race on the show with jane yang mm. a character that's been called an asian stereotype by many in terms of the yeah. portrayal which is very fair giving jane yang more agency as he tries to take over Ehrlich's estate i think is really smart and also fucking hilarious like the show often is mm-hmm. and as they go to hire more Pied Piper employees. You know, they acknowledge this show is fucking white as hell and doesn't have a lot of women mm-hmm. on the show. And whether that's the show poking fun at the allegations or poking fun at themselves, that's up for you to decide. But I think at least that they're putting it out there is a good sign. Whether the plot spins less wheels than it did in season four remains to be seen. But removing Ehrlich, and they actually kind of acknowledge this with the plot so far, but removing Ehrlich, I just think it made so much sense because... The presence of Ehrlich Bachman just felt like such a sequitur the past few seasons because the existence of his character in the lives of Pied Piper really didn't make any sense anymore. They just had mm-hmm. to kind of ham-fist ways to keep him in the narrative. Yeah. So having him out of the picture now, from what we know for good reason, considering T.J. Miller's actions on the set, but I think having him out of the picture is probably for the best and hopefully makes the show a little tighter. So I'm optimistic. Yeah, Jimmy O. Yang, I think he's been one of the funniest actors on the show just in the bits he gets, yeah. but him getting you know Ehrlich out of the way gives him, uh, Jin Yang a much bigger spotlight and I don't know if you've heard any like interviews with Jimmy O. Yang but he's actually a really interesting and thoughtful comedian is, yeah. and I think that his larger presence on the show is going to be a huge addition actually the one thing is kind of like Atlanta I don't really like Richard no at all never have though um but he at least like in the first season felt like someone to root for, even if he was like this huge mm-hmm. nerd. But it's almost kind of like Breaking Bad in a way, where he's gone from being this like right. very timid, whatever, to being like this like huge douchebag. Tech Heisenberg. Yeah, te- that's a great way to put it. Tech Heisenberg. So Con Valley. I hope this season moves in a good direction, moves back to the first couple. We'll see. But a show that I'm very optimistic about is Barry. Uh, HBO's new half-hour comedy coming right on after Silicon Valley, starring Bill Hader, co-created by Bill Hader and Alec Berg, who also is the producer of Silicon Valley. Valley. This first episode was outstanding in my book, and even more than I was hoping for. And it was surprising, too, because, you know, you see Bill Hader and you think it's going to be this, you know, laugh-out-loud comedy, but it's actually, I think, more of a, a melancholic comedy slash drama about this depressed dude it's who's dark. trying to find meaning and it, i think it has potential to be really impactful at least sure. in terms of like if you follow the show it's, you're gonna get great payoffs but mm-hmm. did you like this first episode oh yeah I see you nodding your head a lot oh yeah, yeah yeah and like you said i think this will be really impactful because hbo doesn't have veep this year they're not going to release the final season until 2019 giving julie dreyfus more time to recover from the uh, cancer treatment she had so mm-hmm. they actually kind of need this to be that second comedy next to Silicon. But, I mean, Barry's a dark crime comedy. There's the crime stuff that isn't funny at all. And then there's the everything that we know about Barry's character through the first episode with the PTSD. And just he's a guy looking for purpose and longing for, I guess, companionship, yeah. too. And it, it juggles stuff that's hilarious with stuff that's just really deadpan. And 
I yeah. think it really has the potential to be something really special. And if you listen to Bill Hader do press, which he's done a lot of this for the show, I mean, he seems like this dude's really excited to finally make this. And there's some good talent alongside him. I mean, you got Henry Winkler as the mm-hmm. acting coach guy that he meets. Yep. And that first really, your first introduction to his character, and he treats, Sa- was Sally's her name, right? She treats her like J.K. Simmons was treating Miles Teller in Whiplash, you know, just totally berating him yeah. to get the artistic performance out immediately brought that to mind yep. for me and i mean you got glenn fleischer there as goron he was in waco he was in true detective he's everywhere right now steven root is like his his hitman handler obviously a fucking a class that guy for sure and i also thought the direction on the first episode which was directed by hater i know he doesn't direct all of them but he did direct this one was pretty impressive. I mean, there was some like moving camera bits, and there was that scene where he's in the car in the beginning, and like there was like a, like a, like a screen wipe. So I was impre- impressed with all the different shots that he had in it. Uh, a lot of wide shots as well. So seeing where this goes as Barry becomes an aspiring actor who also happens to be a fucking hitman, <laughs> the concept is great. But the first episode also really hits home how deep the show has potential to be. Yeah, it was interesting because at the end, minor spoiler alert, like the way it ends is he ends up killing this group of people who were paying him to do a hit and he ends up walking away. And I think the way Hater, kind of from that monologue he gives to Henry Winkler about like his purpose in life and how the only thing he's good at is killing and trying to figure out. And then Henry Winkler just being like, ah, oh, where was that from? That was improv. That was on the spot. I mean, like, the, the story's yeah. nonsense, but we can work with that. <laughs> yeah. It touched all the right notes. Cause it went from being this heartfelt moment to touching to thrilling till mm-hmm. him walking away and sitting down in, in a, a diner by himself and mm-hmm. like saying, Oh, I'm an actor now. Like, realizing this is part of his life he needs to explore the emotional roller coaster of the show and the way it hits all these points for the fir- first episode for a pilot is very impressive so i have very high hopes for barry and I-, I have a feeling we'll be discussing it at the end of the year it's probably one of the- our favorite shows by far yeah no doubt anything else you want to talk about today we didn't get to no i mean i, I you know i guess we we reviewed xxs tentacion's second album question mark last week and despite numerous felony charges pending Fucking X did 131,000 equivalent sales first week. Obviously, number one album in the country, second biggest first week of the year so far. And it really goes to show you how powerful a passionate young fan base can be. No other way to put it, especially in the age of streaming. Fucking nuts. I saw The Death of Stalin this weekend. We will review that once Mm. you get a chance to see that. That movie is fucking great. It's my number one movie of 2018 thus far. Tonight, Roseanne Season 10 comes on. Season 9 signed <laughs> off in 1997. Nothing I plan to watch, but still pretty noteworthy. And then also, uh, The Americans, final season, season 6, starts off Tuesday. And I'm Damn. rapidly catching up on The Americans, which is a great show. So I hope to catch up probably just in time to watch the end uh, live the way I did with Breaking Bad a few years ago. Yeah, that's a great show. I, I need to catch up, too. I need to find some time to do that. Uh, I actually probably will be watching Roseanne, so I'll report back oh, nice. with anything notable. Yeah, Julianne's a huge, huge oh, Roseanne wow. fan. Oh, okay. wow. Okay. So. Who the fuck is a huge Roseanne fan? But, Especially uh, someone our age. Apparently, there's a lot of them. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, the show signed off the spring before I started kindergarten, so it's clearly yeah. not a show I grew up with. It also, I don't feel like it had, like, the Friends kick on Netflix the way no. Friends did for people our age so it's interesting to hear that julianne's such a big fan yeah very strange but we got a lot to talk about next week i'm not sure are any albums up on the horizon yeah, there's three records i've noted one of which is rich the kid 
the world is yours debut record. He's a 25 year old rapper. He just released one song. That's a diss, a little Uzi vert. He got he had some interesting bad blood there. Uh, he actually been grinding for a while though. Seven mixtapes since 2013, and New Freezer with Kendrick Lamar was a big hit for him. And then Plug Walk, his newest single, is fucking really hot. So I'm actually really interested to see what that is. I came around on him pretty recently. Zarface meets Metalface is this Zarface collaboration album with MF Doom. Zarface is this rap supergroup with Inspect the Deck from Wu-Tang Clan and then ZL and Esoteric, which is our duo. So I'm excited for that because that's just a lot of talent. And uh, they've made a lot. Zarface made some music before. I think they have like four records. So um, I have high hopes for this. And lastly, I'm actually curious your opinion on this. The Voids, second album Virtue comes out. from. That's the band... <gasps> with Julian Casablancas from The Strokes. I know he had some weird comments to Vulture recently, which are <laughs> definitely worth a read. But yeah, are you? Are, yeah, did you listen to the first Voids album? Or are you a, a fan of Casablancas' work outside of The Strokes? I checked out some of it. I mean, did you read that interview at all? I read the whole thing. The dude claimed fucking Jimi Hendrix did not have any critical or mega acclaim during his time. And then the guy was like, he closed Woodstock. He's like, ah, well, I guess... Maybe he did. Like, it's like, what? Like, you don't even know. I don't know. He's a, he's a fucking asshat, but I'll probably give it a listen for nothing else but, but curiosity and Julian Casablanca's being lead singer of one of the biggest rock bands the last 20 years. So mm-hmm. worth a listen. Yeah, so we got a lot to talk about. Any of the music stuff, go to our Spotify playlist, Nostalgia Best of 2018. I updated it today with a, a Tokyo song or two through on i think that kyle and kalani track which i thought was fantastic yeah. although what kyle is just like a chance wannabe oh yeah no he, he's like watered down chance i feel like that's he hasn't yeah. even been hiding that you know <laughs> yeah it's a, a definitely a playlist we're following we're updating it constantly and we'll take any recommendations we can but yeah we got lots of talk about next week so tune in share with friends subscribe on youtube itunes give us rating and review follow martin swagger follow sheeting world peace and follow at nostalgia pod for all of it We'll catch you next week.